Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook, thedjburr on Instagram, and at djburr1022 on Twitter. Hey guys, thanks for joining me for another episode of Making an Addict. This week, I am talking with Lisa Dewey, who's a therapist in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And she and I are talking about a lot of things, particularly around what it's like to work with people who are mandated by the courts, uh, what it's like to work with teens, and what it means for families who are struggling with addiction. So sit back, relax, and listen to the show. And remember, give me some feedback on social media. I truly appreciate it. Welcome to today's show. I'm talking with Lisa, and Lisa is a therapist in private practice, and she's going to tell us a bit more about herself. And she and I are going to have a conversation today about what makes an addict. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, DJ. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm um, so glad. I, yeah, I am Lisa Dewey. My name is spelled D-U-E-Z, but it's uh, pronounced Dewey. It's a strange little quirk. Um, I'm in private practice in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, I've been on my own for about a, six months, but I have about 20 years of experience working in the field. Um, started working with folks in recovery um, in the criminal justice system and then moved on to uh, do it as a clinical social worker. So I um, worked with um, uh, kids, adults, uh, women, uh, uh, people with, uh, most recently, people with opioid addiction um, issues. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you. It sounds like you have a wide range of experience. Do you have a particular population that you work really well with? I have a, I, I do like to work with, with everyone, but I have a, a heart um, for working with women in recovery. Okay. Um, I kind of have a special, special heart for working with women in recovery. Well, I'm just going to dive right in. What brings people to you? You know, what are they working on? Um, you know, usually with, sometimes they come because they have to. Um, and sometimes somebody makes them come to treatment because sometimes they um, have been involved in the court system and so they, they are mandated to get help. Um, and so there is a good percentage of, of those folks that come there. And then sometimes they just come because they just know that things are not right and um, they, they want to stop. They don't know how um, and they just need some guidance. And um, we try to provide that through individual and group therapy. Okay. And so you run uh, groups as well? I do. I do. Okay. Interesting. Um, so can you talk about 
what are the like the the early things that you address in treatment with people who are dealing with addiction you know are they bringing in stuff about family of origin do they have any idea about that or they're coming in saying hey this judge says i gotta stop using and that's all i'm focused on the first you know it's funny because if it's a mandated client the first thing is hey this judge said i need to be here i or, or they and they and they follow it up with and i want to stop and i don't know how and i've been using for x amount of years and and so the focus is i think first for me is to try to help them stop to get them on to a kind of a recovery plan you know what supports do they have um family support, job, you know, any kind of um, external factors that will help, you know, what, what's almost what's going well, um, because I think they come in a little defeated. Um, so we see what we can build on. Um, try to, I, personally, I try to help to, to get them to, I want them to stop using because I feel like with a co-occurring client, um, they're not much that, you know, I think you have to address the substance abuse first, and then I think you address once they stop using, all of the reasons why they're using starts to come out. And then that's the other part that we work with. Okay. And, and just for our folks who may not know our clinical language, could you tell us what co-occurring means? Oh, sure. So co-occurring is a kind of a clinical language when we say someone has um, a mental health diagnosis and a substance abuse problem, or it could be a mental health diagnosis and an intellectual disability. So there's something and there's two focuses of treatment, but mostly what I see is mental health substance, mental health diagnosis and a substance abuse problem. Um, and so we would treat both. Uh, there's a lot of schools of thought out there that say most people that have a substance abuse diagnosis also have an underlying mental health diagnosis. There's a lot of people that believe that now. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I have treated folks with a variety of addiction issues, and I have worked with people who are addressing the co-occurring uh, issues with the mental health and the substance or the process, which is a behavioral issue that they may be addicted to. And do you educate people about their mental illness and the substance uh, piece, or is that like, do you work with someone else that comes in and kind of educates and does like psychoeducation? Um, I think treatment is, no, I, I do that because I want people, to, I think it's it's power. I think it's powerful for people to understand. Um, I, I never diagnose someone without talking to them about what is their diagnosis and what are the symptoms and why particular that particular diagnosis is something that they have and do they agree with it, you know, because sometimes they may not see that. Um, I educate on the uh, process of addiction, um, what happens, you know, how, how it becomes kind of a cycle. Um, and, I, I, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I think that the, the learning, the treatment process almost starts at the psychoeducational level mm -hmm. because the more they understand, the more they can, the more they learn and they understand, I think it, it begins like, okay, on that level, how can I, how can I, how can I stop this now that I understand that the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah, that's important information for for us to, to talk about. You know, what contributes to someone becoming an addict or someone who's addicted to a behavior and or a substance? Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, I you know I have this 
I'm saying is that uh, humans, culturally, uh, you know, any person, I think we want to feel good when we're, you know, it goes back to that self self soothing behavior. Mm-hmm. So I I want to feel good. I find something that makes me feel good. I feel bad. I do something that makes me feel good. And that's a very simple. I know it's very much more complicated than that, but. I think when we learn that, you know, a certain behavior or a certain substance, you know, takes away pain, um, I think that that's how it, I, I do believe that's how it starts. And I've seen it in treatment where, you know, as people move through the process, they'll say, well, you know, I was tired of the anxiety. I was tired of feeling depressed. I was tired of hearing the voices. I needed to self-medicate, I, you know. And so the treatment process becomes teaching different ways to feel good almost, yeah. You know, to, to feel imbalanced. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I, I, I'm curious if someone has ever asked you, have they ever said, Lisa, is my anxiety the reason I have an addiction? Or is my trauma the reason I have an addiction? Yeah, I think they have. I think they've, you know, maybe not in so many words where they've said, you know, I've, I have had this happen to me. I've had, you know, severe trauma. I've, I have anxiety and I just, can't you know it's like nothing works but you know this works this drug works this behavior works um so i've you know so yes they have and then they kind of realize that you know like i said when you get them clean then you have to deal with the the trauma the underlying um issue and when you say clean you're mostly referring to people who are using uh, substances. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, my substance abuse. Yes, clean. Okay. Yes, yeah. free, drug-free. Yes. Drug-free. I know there's some debate about that the the term clean, especially in the rooms yeah. of recovery. Um, some people find that offensive. Some people don't really yeah, understand what that do. means. And I think some yeah. people take on a lot of shame uh, around some of our clinical language um, mm-hmm. because they don't understand it. So I think it's important for us to kind of spell that out. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. And I think there's another thing with harm reduction also. Um, I don't know if you've heard that where, you know, well, I'm not using heroin anymore. I'm just using marijuana. And, you know, how do we, you know, how do we manage that whole thing? You know, it's not as bad as that, but, you know, the behavior is still there. Right. You know, so. Yeah. So a client comes in, and you said that you see uh, young folks too, right? I do. I'll see teenagers, yeah. Okay, so you see teenagers. A teenager comes in, and let's say they're using marijuana, because that's typically pretty easy for teenagers to get access to, or yeah, prescription Yeah, most pills. common drugs. Yeah. Or alcohol. Or alcohol, especially if they have mm-hmm. it already in the home. How do you yes. help them understand that the substances that they're using are actually causing harm? You know, it's hard with teenagers because they're so peer-driven. And, you know, when you're telling the teenager that it's not right to use marijuana and six of their friends do it and nothing has happened to them, um, you know, they're looking at you like, yeah, okay, lady. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, you don't know what you're talking about. But I think it's just um, talking with them about very real consequences. Um, I will use... Um, Sometimes different stories that I have heard, um, you know, different uh, videos or different, just different mediums to try to speak with them and kind of show them that, you know, backing up what I'm saying a little bit. 
Right. You know, where I say, you know, this is wrong. And then I'll say, you know, let's look at this particular story where this happened and this, you know, do you see a, you know, a correlation? Mm-hmm. So with teenagers, I think you're almost they're coming a lot of times because not only did the judge made them come, but their mom is sitting out there and their dad and, and um, you know, uh, so they're not exactly as more willing to stop as more of an adult that kind of understands the consequences a little bit better and has felt the consequences a little bit more in their life, you know, job loss or different things like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Because the consequences, in my opinion, are what, you know, gets people to the point where they're saying I've had enough. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's, they don't want to say that, you know, that things have gotten really hard on them. They they were in front of the court, you know, uh, you know, they can't get, can't keep a job, you know, but I know that, um, I know that treatment works. I know it. Mm -hmm. I've seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the teenagers that you see, have you seen a lot of trauma walking through the door? Yes. And a lot of, you know, I think with teenagers, you also see a lot of family dysfunction. And unfortunately you see, um, you know, a lot of, uh, behavior that they're emulating, you know, with parents where, you know, it's very difficult. Well, my mom smokes marijuana, so I smoke marijuana. Well, (laughs) so how am I supposed to work with uh, the teenager and tell them it's wrong when the parents are also engaging? Right. And it doesn't mean teenagers are very smart. They are very smart. And I just wanted to say, it, it doesn't mean that the parents are abusing the substances. Right. Not necessarily because they, they'll hold their kids to a different standard and, and maybe that's okay where they don't want their kids to be, to have the same problems as they've had or, or they can control it. They can, they have this uh, functional thing going on where they can, you know, engage and be okay where a teenager just for, you know, different um, physiological and, and, you know, neuroscience stuff just doesn't. Yeah, I mean, the teenagers are still developing. Yes, right? yes, so their thinking patterns are different, their insight is different, um, you know, their, their their realization of consequences are different, their ability to say, well, I'm not going to do that much is a little different, too. Um, so they're still developing, and they're hard to, they're hard to work with because they, you know, uh, especially in groups, um, because a lot of times they're, you know, it's all about the peer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't want to talk about me because this kid that I'm sitting in class with and, you know, you know, you know, I have to try, I have to see him yesterday or next week and I have to see him, some, you know, two weeks from now. And, you know, he's going to make fun of me right? because I disclosed something. Yeah. Peer pressure. Peer pressure. Peer pressure has kind of been at the forefront of, you know, drug use and abuse in schools for for many yes. many years i remember when i was in school they had that that dare program um which yeah, I heard is shifting now because marijuana is legal uh, in several of our states throughout the country and so yeah. they're shifting their focus so it, it sounds like it's safe to say that sometimes people are exposed to substances which they can be later can later become addicted to because of uh, their exposure through peer pressure and also through maybe something they may have witnessed or experienced in their family of origin. 
Yes, very safe to say. Yeah, okay. So an adult comes in and sees you. Let's say they're 25 years old, maybe 25 to 30, and that was their experience growing up. And they're saying, look, my family used, I I had a peer pressure growing up, and I used, and it escalated. How do you help them understand that just because that was their normal experience um, in their youth that may be not so normal now in their adulthood? Yeah, and I think the first thing I would say to that person is, you're 25 years old, what kind of life do you want to have? Okay, valid question. Yeah, yeah, because uh, do you want to go, you know, you have had these experiences and you have had, you know, parents and you dabbled a little bit as a teenager but now you're older and and the rules are changing a little bit you know you have to be responsible you know you could be uh, a parent soon you know do you what kind of life do you want to have you know now that you are on your own and you can make the decisions and you know I I think I, I put it back on them and so most of the time most 99 they say they don't want to be involved in drugs they understand it and they understand what 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 it has done, and they um, they don't want to be involved, and so that's where the work begins. Mm-hmm. So I really like what I'm hearing you say. It's like, what do you want to do with your life? It's like a vision. Yeah. What's the vision? Yeah. And yeah, and, and I don't know that we we think about that too much. No, I was just gonna say, like most people have not been asked that question when they show up at our mm-hmm. office. Yeah. You know, what's your vision? And I think, you know, I can speak for myself personally that my vision became blurred when I had so many things that were outside of my control impacting me. And right. and alcohol and other behavioral addictions uh, took over my life because I was in a lot of pain. And I didn't know what yeah. the, my vision was. And I yeah, had to and get it's sober. like you can't see. Yeah, I had to yeah, get sober and you first. can't see the forest from the trees. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So those are all contributing factors, I think, to people becoming addicted. Now, there's a lot of talk in, in recent months, um, especially since the report came out, and I and I can't recall exactly who released the report, but it they confirmed that you know addiction is a brain disease. It's not a moral yeah. problem. It's a brain disease. Can you speak mm-hmm. on that and how that has impacted your relationship with your clients? Um, and I absolutely agree with that. It's a brain disease. It's a, a medical condition. Um, I always see something that, you know, we treat diabetes. That's almost the same way we have to, we have to treat addiction. You know, in, in the, kind of the same mindset that it's a medical issue. So, um, in the sense of understanding that there's a process where it's a chemical and you're putting a chemical into your body and the chemical is changing your brain chemistry and it is causing, and, you know, we could do a whole nother podcast on what exactly happens when certain substances right. are, you know, ingested. But the, the bottom line is that it changes, you know, your um I'm drawing a blank here, but it changes your chemical makeup and you become where you cannot survive without the drug. Mm-hmm. So the drug becomes, and the best way I can explain is it, it hijacks your pleasure. So um, a client many years ago told me, he said, I used to like playing basketball 
just playing basketball. He said, now I can't play basketball unless I'm high on cocaine. Jeez. And so that, to me, was I've always remembered that. You know, whatever, that was his most favorite thing to do. That was his hobby. That was his, his sport. And he said he cannot do it unless he's high. So, so that's like, you know. His reward. Yeah. Uh, circuitry. His reward. Yeah. Goodness. And so it has hijacked his ability to, you know, like we said earlier, to soothe himself, you know, to, to, to relieve his stress, to, to let loose and have fun and, you know, just be, you know, be free, I guess, you know, free out on the court. And, and he says, I can't do it unless I'm high anymore. Goodness. So, and that's yeah. hard to break yeah. free from. Yeah. You know, you've combined something that you enjoy, that you love, with a substance that is ravaging mm-hmm. your brain and your body. Mm-hmm. And they become fused. Yeah. And so you get confused and you and you, you think one is the other now. Yeah. And they can't, I can't, I can't play basketball unless I'm high. And I'm like, oh my God, I could never forgot that. Wow, that's impactful. And I'm sure in your in your line of work, you have heard a lot of stories. You've heard a lot of you've seen probably a lot of consequences that people have faced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It really is. To see this addiction destroy not just the person's life, but maybe the people around them too. Yeah, it really is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's really it really is. Have you seen a family ravaged by addiction, meaning maybe the, the, the identified patient comes in, but also their mom's addicted, their kid's addicted, the grandma and grandpa were addicted. Have you seen that? Yeah, many times. Um, most recently with a lot of the heroin addiction that we have oh. um, in our area. And in, you know, I think throughout the country, it's becoming more of a thing, but I have seen it and you know, where the kids will be. And it's, sometimes it's different substances. Or there will be a family that's, you know, it's prescriptions, or then it will be, you know, there's, you know, the heroin addiction or something. But you do see, um, I do see it quite often. Um, or the client will come in, and then you will talk with them, and we kind of talk about their family, and they will say, my mom did this, or, my, you know, my dad was addicted. And, and usually... Usually, if it's an adult, there is one parent or uh, some sort of an uncle or grandmother that's been addicted. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, know, and it doesn't always have to be the same substance or even sometimes it's behavior, but there's something. Right, because sometimes a substance is not as easy to get to as a behavior that you have and that you do mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Like, I treat people who struggle with sex addiction. Well, um, uh-huh. all human beings are sexual. Right. And so it, I, my struggle is, is helping people understand is that, yes, you're not injecting a chemical into your body, but you are actually manipulating the chemicals in, already in your brain. Right. To get that high. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a long time to get people to understand that. And sometimes they have to have additional consequences before they get it. They do. They do. Um, addicts have always will always say that they have to hit rock bottom. You'll hear them say that often. Is I have to hit rock bottom. And then as a therapist, just when you think they've hit rock bottom, you think, oh, no, they can't. Something else happens. And you're, it's, it's crushing sometimes. 
yeah. to watch somebody. You know, and, um, it's I, hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. You know, because um, we have because to. Because you just want to just tell them stop. Right, right. Because we can't, <laughs> take, all, we can't take it all on. Right? No, no. We have, what, no. like 50 minutes with a person, sometimes maybe an hour and a half if you're doing a group and we maybe mm-hmm. see them every week, we can't take all of their stuff on and, and, and make it ours. We can hold it no, for a because... limited time mm-hmm. and support them when they're in front of us and care and, and have concern for their well-being. But, you know, I see 20 to 24 people a week. I'm not sure how many you see, but that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot about that about that not all of them are in recovery but all of them have other things going on too and you you do um you think about it afterwards a little bit mm-hmm. and but the thing is is that you can't tell anybody either right <laughs> can't come home and say hey husband let me tell you about this session today right right mm-hmm. yeah you can't do that you gotta get good supervision or good consult, consultation consult groups are yeah. helpful consults yeah. yes Absolutely. good consults so you can you can uh get some support yeah and i think what's also important for the client who is suffering from addiction is to get into some sort of group it doesn't have to be 12 step but it really Mm -mm. needs to be focused on recovery efforts i can't stress that enough yes i think it's a good um it's such a learning community um and i tell you I've, i've seen so many great um groups um, that are so supportive. Um, once you get a couple people in there and I have seen, you know, with the women I work with that they just, you know, I feel like I'm almost a side. I'm just the, just the flower on the wall and they you get in them in there and they just talk and they get themselves through it and they get each other through it. And it's amazing. Yeah. They become the um, facilitators. Yeah. Yeah. And they support um, one another and, you know, um, Addiction thrives in isolation, but it can be yeah. combated with a community. Mm-hmm. Right? We yeah, there's something about Yeah, there's something about once um once somebody puts themselves out there, there are people to catch them. And I think it's wonderful. I love that. Yeah, once there's some once they get um once they get hooked up with a group and you're right, it doesn't have to be a twelve step, it, you know, just a treatment group. Um, but it's important mm-hmm. um, because you can give feedback and you can receive feedback. Um, yeah. And you talk with people that are have a similar story. Right. I think that's what's really important is to know that I'm not alone. There's someone sitting right. next to me or across from me who has a similar story. And it doesn't have yeah. to be word for word because we have our own individual experience. But listen for the themes, I say. Because they are yeah. very similar. Yeah, and I, the shame goes away. Because as you said, there's a lot of addi- a shame and addiction, and there is, and no matter what type, the shame goes away because you're working, you're seeing someone that's, like you said, that the circumstances are different, but the theme is there. Right, right. So I'm curious, how long does someone typically work with you? Um, you know, I I try to do um, usually six. Tw- Six to 12 months, I think, you know, um, but I think recovery is a lifelong journey, but I think sometimes people in therapy about six to 12 months, um, maybe a little longer, mm-hmm. um, depending on what's happening. Trauma. Yeah. Depending on what's happening. I'm a big proponent of doing group and individual work 
um, because I want to help people, you know, get through with the trauma. You know, maybe some of the things that they won't talk about in groups, some of those underlying issues. Um, I do think that if you're in addiction, you should be in, I do feel like individual therapy and group therapy is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I support that. And yeah. the, the trauma piece, um, it's interesting because a lot of people will come in and they'll tell me their stories and I'm like, Oh my God, that sounds horrible. And they're like, yeah, oh, that's not that bad. I'm like, uh, right. yeah, it is. Yeah. And you, you wonder how in the world, you know, it, it, it given being in the show has given me such an appreciation for uh, my fellow man is that you walk around and you can walk down a city street and you can see so many people and you just don't know. Yep. half the half of it you know you don't and and I you know I have a very diverse clientele and I'm very grateful um and you come in and and you know you you know by the grace of God don't lie mm-hmm. because there's a lot of people struggling with a lot of things and we out don't there. know and we don't know and you don't they know. tell us or we ask and... yeah yeah and sometimes it's you know you know but it um you're right. Sometimes I think, how in the world? I just, you know, when you hear a story, you think you're about the most resilient person I have met in my life because I don't know if I could go through what you went through. Oh yeah, I'm quick to tell a client you know? that. Like, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to deal with that. Right. I tell them, and they look at me like, "What?" And I'm like, "No, you, you've been dealing with this for how long? And you haven't. This is the first person you've. I'm the first person you've told." Right. Hmm. Yeah. I'm blessed to have the, the, the job that I have. And oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's the best thing that I've ever done. And being someone in recovery and helping people who are seeking recovery is a true blessing for me because it helps me stay sober too because I mm-hmm. understand the importance of the work that I do both professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. So impactful. I, would agree. I think it's a gift. I think it's a gift to do what we do. Yes, it is a gift. Now, you know, before we part, I I want to check in to see if you have any words of wisdom that you could impart to our audience who may be struggling or um, needing some insight. What would you, what do you have to offer? Hmm. Words of wisdom. Um, I have a, a, a saying on my wall, and this is my favorite thing that I, I have to remind myself, you know, even when I have some things that I want to change about myself. And it's a thing that my supervisor, my LCSW supervisor, um, who has always told me, you know, and it's a, just a life truth. And I think it's that the, the thing is, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Hmm. And I'm like, Okay, so that just means if you don't change anything, then it's going to stay the same, which is everybody's like, well, of course, that, that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then I'm like, but think about it. What, what are you going to change? Because if you don't change anything, if you don't take a leap, if you don't step out in faith, if you don't, you know, don't smoke that joint or don't do that behavior, then, then nothing will change. You know, you're going to come in next week and it's going to be the same. So what are you going to do to make a small baby step? And so I think that was, that's my big mantra. Yeah. Is if you change nothing, then nothing changes. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I need to write that down. Yeah. That's my big, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you, know. you so much. I think that's a fabulous way to end today's episode. Is to say, oh, you're very welcome. If if nothing changes, nothing changes. Yeah. 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 Well, let's hope that everyone out there listening will make a decision to make a change, no matter yes. what has brought them in to either your office, my office, or there's you know at some agency somewhere. It doesn't matter as long as you're willing to make a change. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think recovery in any shape or form is um, one of the hardest things that anybody can do, and I have so much respect um, for somebody that takes that journey. I, I can't even. I'm, I'm humbled every day by be able to being able to work with folks in any type of recovery. Yes. Well, thank you for the work that you do. We all greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Making an Addict. For all my listeners, I have a special gift for you. I created a seven steps guide to power up your recovery and you can access it today. Go to bit.ly slash seven steps guide. That's bit.ly slash the number seven steps with an S guide. Go ahead and go there now and get your free guide. Sign up for the newsletter and it will be sent to you in your email. Take care. That was such a fun show. I really appreciated having Lisa on today. Lisa, thank you. And please come back sometime. I thoroughly enjoyed our talk. Guys, if you want to get in touch with Lisa, please follow her on social media. You can reach her on Facebook at Lisa Dewey. That's L-I-S-A-D-U-E-Z-L-C-S-W. And that's on Facebook. And she's also on Instagram at the same handle, Lisa Dewey L-C-S-W. And you can go to her website at lisadewey.com. Make sure you follow Lisa and you will get some great insight from her and the practice that she has over in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Thanks again. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at DJBurr1022 and TheDJBurr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's show featured music by CDK.